0: Good morning, Christ Church. It's good to be back with you as we come this morning to the conclusion of our time in John's first epistle. We'll look to 1 John, verses 5, chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. And in this passage, John is summarizing all that he has written, uh, pointing us once again to the main point of the letter, that our confidence is in Christ, our assurance is in Christ, and we are called to be confident of that place in Christ because of what He has done for us. As I prepare to read this text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that Your Word points us to Christ, and we pray this morning as Your Word is preached As Your Word is read, as Your Word is heard, we would see Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the Word of the Lord. There's a saying. It's not what you know, but who you know that counts you may have experienced this uh, saying or the truth of it when you've tried to gain access to a crowded restaurant or a crowded uh, event of some kind. Maybe you are graduating from school and you're looking for a job and the truth that it's not what you know but who you know uh, is, is coming to roost for you now. This passage actually speaks to both what we know and who we know and tells us that when in their proper place, they're both important. The opening of this passage, verse 13, says it all. It is... A summary statement for the letter, it is a summary statement for the passage I have read. It is beautiful as a summary statement, but it is also beautiful in and of itself. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. Let that thought? wash over you for a moment. The knowledge of eternal life. But where does that knowledge come from? And what does it change? John says, I write these things. What what are these things? These things that John writes are all the things that we have read in the first five chapters of John He's speaking of all that has come before. So, if you have been with us as we have preached through this letter, do you remember what we've talked about? We've talked about what it means to live in the light. We've talked about what it means to be a child of God and to walk as the children of God. So we have talked about obedience. The place of obedience for the believer. We've talked about truth, what it is and what it is not, and why truth is important. We've talked about love, trying to define it and showing it as a marker of the Christian life. And we have talked most recently last week about faith, belief. These are vital markers of the Christian life. They are what John has put before us as the markers of our assurance of eternal life. But there's a danger in that. Just as important as it has been for us to look inward and to see, are these markers present in our lives? Are are we living the life of a Christian? and in looking inward to see the presence of our assurance of our place in Christ, those are important, but there's also a danger in it that we've got to be aware of. Because as we look at these markers, the danger could be we see them as a checklist. And something deep within us wants a checklist. We want a place that we can sort of make check marks by the to-do list. And if those to-dos are now done, we can feel confident that we have done what we need to do to be in Christ. That checklist mentality can also be a mentality that sends us to despair, becoming keenly aware of how woefully short we fall in these markers, Either way, whether it takes us to despair or confidence in self, if we look at these markers of assurance as a checklist, we would be missing the point. We'd be missing the point of John's writing in this letter, and we would be missing the point of the gospel itself. These markers of assurance are important but they are evidences, meant to be evidences, of something much deeper. John writes these things, these markers of assurance, so that we can look inward and see in our heart the truth that we have been born of God. And by virtue of our new birth, we are intimately connected to Christ in an abiding union. In other words, what we know, eternal life, our knowledge of eternal life, what we know is rooted in and founded upon who we know. Jesus Christ. It really is true. It's not what you know. It's who you know. And John is pointing us to the One who knows us. Jesus Christ telling us that if we believe in Jesus as we have defined belief faith that we are intimately united to him that we are being transformed by him and we are therefore recipients of all of his benefits that's what it means to have assurance in him it's where that assurance comes from but I asked you another question what does it change what does that assurance of your eternal life in Christ change for you. Look, each week when I prepare to preach, I will read the text many, many times. As I was reading this text this week, I I found myself at one point reading through and coming to verse 13 and just stopping. It's these words came over me, know that you have eternal life. We, 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 we rush past that far too often rather than pausing and, and letting that sink in. And I found myself at one point this week reading and, and just basking in the beauty of this truth that in Christ I have now eternal life. It was a fresh realization of the beauty and the blessings life that we have in Christ which meant for me in that moment and I wish to communicate to you now that eternal life is not in doubt that it is certain in Christ and that certainty changes everything it changes our goals in life and for the day it changes the sense of urgency that We might feel to achieve those goals, making some of the goals that we have placed for ourselves less important and some infinitely more so. This reality, this certainty of life uh, impacts our pressure to perform, removing it. Look, we still live with the reality of the fall we still are impacted in the world around us and within our own hearts as we deal with anxious fears but the certainty of the reality of life gives us a greater ability in the midst of those anxious fears to be present in the moment eternal life it It changes our time horizon, impacting our relationships, what we hope to get out of them, giving us an ability with that longer horizon to be present now with others and with the Lord. Because we're not striving for acceptance. It's been given to us in Jesus Christ Think about your earthly relationships. Those where you have a sense of unconditional acceptance and those in which you don't. Where we don't feel that certainty of acceptance. We spin our wheels, constantly feeling the need to prove ourselves, our worth. Some of you might experience that in the... Uh, stresses of sports. (laughs) Some of you might be in occupations where your living is based on sales productivity. A banner year might simply mean that the expectations are raised again for the next year. How exhausting is that, but how wonderful does it make you Feel when you know that there is a relationship where you don't have to strive to perform. There is a relationship that is lasting and secure, not because of what we have done or will do in the next year, but because of Jesus. Reflect upon and enjoy not what you know, but who you know. More importantly, the one who knows you. All of this is calling us to be confident in our place in Christ. But as John opens up this passage with that truth, to be confident of our place in Christ, he moves into more specifics. He gives us some explicit details of what it means to live out of that confidence, beginning with the call that uh, out of our knowing, uh, we are to be confident in prayer. Do you know the difference between uh, confidence and cockiness? (laughs) Cockiness uh, has this need to proclaim my confidence. Now, maybe the cocky person is proclaiming confidence to convince others. Maybe the cocky person is proclaiming confidence to convince self. But quiet confidence instead simply acts. Here's the other thing about the confident person. The most confident people are actually the ones who are most willing to ask for help. You see it in business. The confident people are the ones who know that they should be surrounding themselves with people smarter than them. The confident people are the ones who know they need help. And so they embrace it. Not threatened uh, by those around them and for the cocky it's not so why is it well maybe it's maybe it's blind arrogance that that uh, blinds them to this awareness of their need but maybe the cockiness is masking something deep down do you know the tv show this is us i know different ones of us have different thoughts on that one Um, but Anna and I seem to enjoy that show. It's a story of triplets who are living adult lives impacted by the entirety of their story. And so uh, there is this sometimes maddening back and forth of the flashbacks of the past, occasionally a flash forward. But the show tries to capture how the past impacts the present and the future in the lives of these triplets. One of the triplets is Randall. Now, Randall actually was adopted into this family, but he was born on the same day as uh, his adopted uh, twin brother and sister. But Randall, for a variety of reasons, struggles with and is haunted by experiences from his past which means he's ever striving to uh, perform, ever striving to prove his worth, and he's unwilling or unable to uh, recognize or acknowledge his own weaknesses. The funny thing about Randall, though, is to the naked eye, he appears to have it all. He is incredibly bright. He is good-looking. He has the smile. He has the posture that screams of confidence all that we would associate with confidence but the show does this beautiful job of drawing out his inner insecurity so randall has a need to be the fixer has a need to to fix situations problems even redo events of the past but the problem is he can't and he is destructive in his efforts to try and fix those issues, sometimes destroying relationships in the process, all to prove himself, either to others or to himself. He tries to portray confidence, but in trying to portray confidence, he proves that he lacks it. Because he lacks confidence, he's unwilling to acknowledge His need. Brushing it off at every turn. The text this morning, it's got a direct message. For Randall, it's got a direct message for me. It's got a direct message for you. That true confidence, confidence in Christ, casts off our need to pose. Spiritually, this means that our confidence, which is rooted in Christ, gives us a right perspective on prayer. Now, prayer, by definition, is our active, bold acknowledgement of our dependent trust in the Lord. So verse 14 calls us to this prayer. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything... According to His will, He hears us. We have confidence to approach God. We have confidence to speak to God. We have confidence to ask of God and confidence that He hears and answers prayers. Now, this verse is not telling us that we command God, that God must do our bidding. But it does remind the children of God that we have a place before the throne of grace to come boldly in our need, in our dependence. With this confidence, the text goes on to tell us that we are to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to put verse 16 and 17 back before you. They are somewhat confusing, but let me read them again and let's let's try and explore them. John, after calling us to confidently pray, says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. What is this sin that leads to death and sin that does not? lead to death something within us probably maybe if you're like me is tempted to try and chart out the sins to sort of take a whiteboard one side the ones that don't lead to death and one side the, those that do lead to death so if we think through that little white lies well you know we're probably all right with that not many people are going to die from a little white lie coveting well everybody does that all right Murder, that's a big one. Let's, let's, let's put that in the, in the lead to death. How about adultery? Well, yeah, it doesn't feel right, but maybe that's, a, maybe that's one that leads to death. Is that the way you think about this? That the Lord's calling us to sort of chart out the sins and put them in one of two categories? It's tempting, as that might seem. After all, it... Puts it in our control, right? Scripture points us to a different truth. The The context of Scripture tells us something else, that it's not the specifics of the sin, but rather the heart of the sinner that differentiates between these sins that do not lead to death and the sins that do. Look at the history of Scripture. The saints of old are this Hall of Fame list of sinners. Moses was a murderer. His brother Aaron, the high priest, was an idolater. Paul, the apostle of the New Testament, who did such a tremendous work of church planting and writing Scripture, was at best a co-conspirator, at worst a murderer as he persecuted the church. And then there's King David, a murderer, an adulterer, and a deceiver. But for all of them and all the rest of the sinners throughout Scripture that the word points to as believers, that there's something deeper going on, a deeper issue of the heart. You see, they were repentant. The sin that leads to death is sin that is committed by an unrepentant heart. That's what this letter has been warning about, as it is pointed us to or maybe rather away from rejection of Christ a hardened heart that rejects Christ a chronic unapologetic disobedience to God's commands a persistent lack of love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so when John tells us to pray for sin that does not lead to death. He's telling us to pray for fellow believers. He's telling us to pray for fellow believers that they might not become hardened in their sin. He's telling us to pray for fellow believers that they would experience the fruit of repentance. They would experience intimacy, renewed intimacy with Christ. John's telling us to pray for fellow believers in our struggle against sin. So what do we then do with this statement in verse 16 that speaks of the sin that leads to death, and then he goes on to say, I do not say that one should pray for that. Well, let's acknowledge that it's hard and confusing, but let me try and do my part in bringing some clarity. First, see that when John says this, he uses the first person... Pronoun I. That might at least partially tell us that our pastor John is giving us a word of personal pastoral counsel. Second, understand that sin that leads to death by definition is sin that is committed by the unbeliever. By the one who has not yet been born of God, who is stuck in unrepentant sin. Thirdly, remember that Scripture commands that we participate in the work of evangelism. Scripture commands that we pray for Holy Spirit wrought revival. Scripture's commanding elsewhere that we pray that lost sinners would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So this text cannot be prohibiting prayer for lost sinners that in mind I believe what John is doing is giving us a matter of priority rather than prohibition he's telling us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ you struggle in sin because all wrongdoing is sin even those little white lies which means that every one of us in the church of Jesus Christ needs this sin not just the other person I need it And you need it. As important as it is for us to pray for those outside of the family of Christ, pray for those inside first, and then together we'll pray for revival. It seems to be what Jesus is saying when in John 17, 9, in His high priestly prayer, He says that He is not praying for the world, but He's praying for those who have been given to Him by God the Father. <clears throat> Look, We hear these truths and, and they, they put before us a series of sort of application-oriented questions. And the first I put before you is this. Are you confident enough in Christ to let go of trying to be the fixer and to actually depend upon Him in prayer? Now, as so I ask you that question, understand? I'm not ans- I'm not asking for the Sunday school answer. If you're listening to this, you probably know intellectually what the answer ought to be, and I'm not asking you what the answer ought to be. I'm asking you this. Are you a person of persistent prayer? Don't tell me what you think I need to hear. I'm asking you, how is this played out in your life? Do you love others, particularly in the body of Christ, enough to get in the trenches with them, in the struggle with sin, to pray for them? Or are you satisfied to simply stay out of the fray and remain in gossip? I know these questions come across rather harshly, but it's the only way I know to draw us out. All of us need a band of brothers or a band of sisters who will love us enough to get their hands dirty and to join in the fight against sin because the fight against sin is an intimacy destroyer what we need most in this christian life is intimacy with christ so this is how we live out our confidence in christ we pray because verse 18 tells us christ protects us he was the one who was born of god and he protects us from the evil one who in Christ cannot touch us, taking us away from Him. So knowing Him leads to confident prayer, but also knowing Him leads to confident clinging. (laughs) I hope and pray that this exercise of expository preaching straight through books of the Bible like we do at Christ Church is as much a blessing for you as it is for me. It is the great joy of my life to, along with you, the body of Christ, slowly make our way through a book of the Bible, to mine it for the truths that the Lord has for us and to enjoy them together. It is always a blessing for me and has been just the same as we've been through 1 John. And in 1 John, I have been refreshed anew with John's focus on the primacy of the new birth, of regeneration, and of His focus on the resulting abiding union that we enjoy in Christ. He's gone there time and time again throughout this letter, and so how fitting is it that at the end He would do just the same. Once again... In verse 18, he reminds believers that we have been born of God. In verse 19, he tells us that we are from God. He's speaking to this new birth, that we have been given a new nature, a new heart of God, given to us by God, initiated by God. And Then, in verse 20, He tells us that we know Him who is true and are in Him who is true. That is, we are in one. We are with Him as one in union. Knowing eternal life, knowing Jesus leads to confident clinging. When I was a child, um, oftentimes I would uh, hang on to my, my daddy's leg. Uh, It just, as a child, seemed to be a place of of safety and connection. I, I felt I knew I could be there because I knew I was loved by Him and I was confident in the reception I would receive from Him. So this clinging to His leg was the most natural thing I could do remember one day I came up behind my, my daddy and, uh, and grabbed onto his leg. I hadn't looked up at him yet. I grabbed onto his leg and ultimately I swung around and looked up and guess what? It wasn't him. I had grabbed onto the wrong leg and as a child I ran Partly out of embarrassment, partly out of fear, because I knew this person that I had clung to was not the one I was connected to. I did not have a confident connection, and so therefore to cling to him would have been unnatural. I understood that innately as a child. But the same is true now for a believer who knows he or she has eternal life because he or she knows Jesus, to cling to Him is the most natural way that we could experience and express our union. Yet to cling to anything or anyone else would be foolish. It would be unnatural. So to cling to Christ means that we let go of anything else. Scripture connects our uh, union of marriage to our union with Christ. And so in speaking of marriage, the Scripture tells us that we are to leave our father and mother and to cleave to or cling to our wife and our gospel union. We do the same. We leave our idols and we cling to Christ. Now, this may seem like an abrupt way to end this letter, but this is exactly what John is telling us, that we leave idols and cling to Christ. It is the most natural thing for a believer to do. So what is an idol? An idol is... Anything or anyone other than God Himself and we are tempted to trust, to obey, to follow, to worship. And for the believer, there is no place to continue clinging to these idols when we have been given Christ. So John tells us, keep away from them, let them go. I ask some more questions. Do you let them go? Are you letting go of idols? Again, not the the Sunday school answer. We all know intellectually what the answer ought to be and are trained to answer in that way. But we're not talking about wooden carved statues that we put on a shelf and offer prayers to, we're talking about those things, those lesser things that we're tempted to give our hearts over to. Are you letting go? Many of us have adopted a certain comfort level with idolatry so that we have become numb to the things that get in the way of our clinging to Christ. What are those things for you? Could it be your hobbies? Those those activities that you give far too much time or or thought, energy to? Might it be the inordinate focus that you that we I'm in all this with you. Might it be the inordinate focus that we place on financial success, on on winning? Might it be the obsession that we place on our reputation? Have you, have we, grown numb to the presence of our idols? And how are those idols impacting your experience of union in Christ? Do you find it hard to embrace Christ with one arm and your idols with the other? As a child, when I had the wrong leg, I turned and ran. Sadly, as an adult, far too often I will linger. How about you? In the beginning, I asked uh, that we pause and reflect our knowing eternal life. Friends, this is a letter meant to offer assurance of our salvation, of our eternal life because of Christ and Through it, John is calling us to be assured. Confidently knowing our place in Christ and in His kingdom is secure, not because of what we know, but because of who we know, or more importantly, who knows us. Maybe that's why John closes his letter this way. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Leave them. And cling to Christ confidently, unashamedly, and enjoy the blessing of life in Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word that stirs us to look inwardly, to reflect upon the transformation that You are bringing. But Father, as we do so, I pray for my own heart and for those who are listening, that as we look inward. We would first and foremost look to Christ. Make this the fruit of our time in this letter. And keep us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.